1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: You play to win the game. You play to win the game. This have achieved something good. I'll tell you what they've achieved. They've achieved something absolutely rotten. Then I'll just tell you, don't
2: ask
1: me a
0: turn around. Go back that way. Bye. See you.
1: Heart attack. don't think we deserve to lose that. But
0: they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I cannot believe that somebody awarded him the Man of the Match. That was a total and absolute disgrace. When you start telling me it doesn't matter, then retire. Get out, because it matters.
2: Hello and you're very welcome along to episode 5 of My Worst Day with myself David Sheehan. I hope you're all keeping safe and well and slowly but surely getting back to normal. Now so far on this series we've spoken to Andy McEntee, Adrian Reed, Tim Clancy and Jackie Shields and all of those episodes are available on the LMFM website, the LMFM app or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest this week is former Leinster, Munster and Ireland back row Niall Ronan. Niall as many of you know had his career ended prematurely by injury and while that does feature in the discussion, his worst day comes from a game back in 2008. Niall also discusses integrating himself back into the dressing room with his GEA club St. Column Kills and taking on a leadership role there after many years away in the professional rugby arena. So here it is, episode 5 of My Worst Day with Niall Ronan. So, Niall, thanks so much for for doing this week's edition of My Worst Day. When I suggested it to you last week, and I, I suppose anyone that's familiar with your with your career on the rugby side of things, at least, will know how how it ended for you. But things aren't always as straightforward as that with with these questions. So, when I said it to you about you know thinking about the kind of the bad days you had on the sporting field, what was it that that immediately came to mind?
1: Um, the one that stands out the standard most was losing to the All Blacks. Um, in Tolman Park in 2008 it was, we were so close to beating so it was one of the best rugby teams in the world and a lot of that team went on to win a World Cup two years later so uh, about four or five minutes ago we were winning the match and they got a try to win it so for me that was probably one of the hardest things to take because history would have been taking place you know
2: yeah, because everybody, you know, certainly my, my from my own family side of things, my my dad's from Limerick, and a couple of a couple of his um, family members and my older brother was they were actually at that game against the All Blacks back. I think it was nineteen seventy eight, and they have the program at home to prove it and everything. But as you said there. You would have been joining those those guys really, and we know the legendary status that that game has taken on. So was that kind of part of why it was it was such a tough one to take? Aside from the fact that you know you guys in your own right were going to create history, but you would have been held in such high regard alongside that that famous win from from all those years ago.
1: Absolutely. Well, a few days before we um, played that match, the players that took part in that game, thirty years before that, um, they handed out our jerseys to each player. Um, and it was an incredible experience. And I suppose we wanted to keep the history going and beating the All Blacks in toman Park. Uh, we, we got to the last three or four minutes. Unfortunately, they got a try to win the game. But uh, it was an incredible experience. But that was one that I regret that uh, we didn't win. And did you feel... Did you kind of feel almost? I mean, you know, to, to take on the All Blacks,
2: even for an international side. And I know you you kind of touched on the fact there that maybe maybe you could say it wasn't their their first fifteen or whatever, but it was still a very very strong All Blacks team. Did you feel an, under any any pressure to beat them? Because obviously they would have been heavy favourites. But given the unique kind of situation there, and 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 given the win that that happened all those years ago, did you kind of feel under pressure to, to carry on that tradition?
1: Um. Well. I didn't until I got off the bus and I saw grown men crying telling us that we better win the game <laughs> really, I realized fine. how big how big it was where um we were getting our bags from underneath the bus and there was a grown man crying saying you better win today and you know it spurring us on um we were there about an hour and a half before the game and uh Tom Park was absolutely packed and you know in other games maybe half an hour before the game the crowd would come in so we knew it was special but to be honest with you when you play for Munster Toman Park it doesn't matter who you're playing you believe you can win and we went in with the mindset that we're out to win the match we still had a very good strong side Uh, some people would have said we played with a second team as well but we had some world class players in our team and we thought we, we could win and we nearly did
2: yeah, and and people that remember that game and I think I was I was uh, I think I might have sent it on to you at the time I was down in, in Cork last year and I was in a particular pub and there was a photo of the, the Munster hacker going on which people might remember as well I mean that was the, the three New Zealand guys that were on the Munster team at the time um, like that was an incredible moment was that something that was planned or, or how did that go?
1: Yeah, there was actually four New Zealand players uh, so there was there was the, um, you had Rui Pokey, Lafemi Mafi Dougie Howlett and who was the last one there was four I'll be dead for getting this wrong Jeremy Manning Jeremy Manning <laughs> yeah so there were four of them so basically Ruudapoki, uh got permission off the Maori tribe that his father would be associated with um, and asked the New Zealand Rugby Union could we do a haka or the New Zealand players do a haka before their one and the permission was granted um and before the the game uh, we had a captain's run and ruined the pokey uh explain explained what their hacker represented. And um, it was incredible In the dressing room It made sure that we were Focused and ready for the game um, And uh, he was representing His family's tribe uh, And then uh, the guys did it And obviously the hacker The New Zealand did their hacker And it was a great way To kick off a game in fairness
2: Yeah because I mean it, it was just I mean obviously teams Are well used to facing The New Zealand hacker But for the and, and I guess only Only a small group of people Would have known about that That before the game I'm not sure how, how Common knowledge it was I mean, obviously you guys knew, but I'm not sure if any of the supporters or anyone in the wider kind of arena would have known about it. So when, when that started, I think we were all kind of watching on and it was it was really something and it really got the, the crowd going and you, I'm sure you get goosebumps even now thinking about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it was on RT2 uh, there the other night when I watched it and geez, all the memories come flooding back. But I was only back from a medial ligament injury and I was there for eight weeks and uh, I would have went through a wall I didn't care if my knee was injured and uh, I got b- b- cramped in both calves with two minutes to go but the adrenaline got me through the game and then um, the hack it to start off the game you go through a wall and the supporters obviously made brought it to the next level as well
2: and you know you, you talk about about losing that game and I mean, in, in in on the one one hand, it was a huge a huge match, you know, the the profile of it and everything else. But on the other hand, I suppose it was it was it was you know a, a competitive game in, in in every sense of the word, except except that like it wasn't like a, a pro a pro fourteen or a Heineken Cup game or anything like that. So maybe some people might be surprised that 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 game is, is so high up on your on your list. But clearly, it's it was the the occasion and everything that went with it and the history as we as we talked about. So, in the dressing room after the game, like did it take you a while to get over it or? Was was it something you could you kind of were, were able to put behind you quite quickly? Because I suppose that's part of the the reason we started doing this this series to talk by pe- talk to people about the games that they lost or this, the circumstances that went against them and and how they they dealt with it afterwards. I mean, was it something that that stayed with you for for quite a while? Clearly, it must it must be if you're still thinking about it now or still talking about it now.
1: Yeah, well, if you lived in Limerick and you understand the history and the supporters that. Uh, that were there in Tom in Tomah Park in 1978, I think it was. Um, they they still live it to this day, and we wanted to be part of that. Uh, and to lose the game against the greatest team in the world, um, it was tough to be honest with you. Um, you know, for the first hour after the game, we were kind of devastated. But uh, a lot of the players came in the internationals that were playing the weekend, like O'Connell and David Wallace and guys like that. They kind of came in and basically said, "Guys, that was incredible." Um and kind of we got o- we didn't get over straight away but we celebrated um what we achieved in terms of our, of our performance and obviously it was an incredible experience but you know it's one that uh, I uh, regret losing because it would have been like to keep the, be part of that history you know but that's life and sport.
2: Yeah and w- one of the earlier episodes we were chatting to Adrian Reid and he, he was talking about the t- 2010 Leinster final of course which everyone remembers and he was saying you know the last 10 minutes loud were hanging on a little bit and he kind of had a feeling that something was just going to go against him. In the closing minutes of that game and you mentioned the late try that New Zealand got, could you kind of sense that you were really hanging on and again rugby is such a different game to, to GA where it's very kind of hard to 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 shut it down or close it out if the other team has the ball, unless they you know if they're recycling it, and especially when you're tired. Could you sort of sense that a try was coming, and was it was it really kind of grating on your nerves in those last kind of five ten minutes?
1: Well, I watched the back to the night, and we should have got uh, at least one penalty. We got two penalties against us. Roman Pot, uh, no comment about him. But um, <laughs> the ball shot out of a rock, and Mick O'Driscoll kicked it. Uh, but which is legal is open play, and he gave a penalty against that. And then we turned them over more or less, and it was should have been a turnover. And he played advantage, and they scored a try from that. So uh, look, I'm, I'm not clutching the straws here, but we we were defending uh, very well, and. Um, to try they did score was actually a mistake from, our, from us defensively if we kept the system we uh, we could have kept them out but at the same time they're probably the best team in the world they know how to score tries late in games and uh, they did that again unfortunately
2: and when you talk about the, the system if you'd kept your system what exactly was it and I'm not obviously I don't know was it an individual mistake or somebody shooting was, up out of the line or what
1: but what was exactly the nature of it uh, it was like Femi Maffey shot out of the line I was texting him the other day about it but uh, he still hasn't watched the back. but um, no he's a good lad he just he, he shot out at an angle where if he just stayed where he was and came up uh, collectively we may not have conceded a try, but sure, that's life. Yeah, these things
2: happen. But I mean, yeah, it was such an incredible game. But as you said, to come so close and and not quite get it done, and it's still like I mean, that game is is still remembered. And the, as I said, the the pictures and everything are up, and it's it's a game that even though you lost, it's still very fondly remembered. And I, I guess when the dust settled on it, and and as you said, the lads came into the dressing room, the internationals afterwards, and sort of gave you all a big pat in the back. Did you like when you look back at it now? Can you can you take a lot of pride out of it? And even though you lost, still kind of think well that was. Still a hell of a performance against against the All Blacks there in that game
1: Yeah absolutely I think everyone who was involved on the day uh, they were just honoured to be part of it Um, I think if you were in the stadium that day you'll never forget it Uh, the atmosphere the Munster fans for me are the best in the world and they brought it to another level that day Um, and the whole experience of playing the All Blacks they had two hackers to how close the game was, uh, the opportunities we had, some of the performances uh, like uh, Paul Warwick was outstanding on the day, um, so we all were honoured to be part of it. But uh, we're all competitive and we wanted to win, and uh, we didn't. That's the hard part.
2: And when you play a game like that, and you know you're you're so close to winning against a team as strong as the All Blacks, from a personal point of view, and I'm sure you were, you never had any doubt about your own ability and you were playing at a high level for such a long time but do you do you kind of look at yourself differently after a, a game like that and think well actually maybe you know I'm, I'm I'm well capable of playing at an even higher level than I am at the moment like how does that kind of work for you or is, is that sort of something that wouldn't really enter in, into your head you're you're fairly you were fairly confident and comfortable in your own ability and you didn't kind of need that sort of reassurance but I can I can imagine it must have done your confidence a lot of good
1: yeah absolutely the more bigger games you play the better you'll uh, be as a player like um, I suppose in rugby you get to travel the world and play against the best players in the world uh, and compete against them and see what they do and analyse them so uh, yeah every time you play in a big game and you play well uh, you do grow confidence but you got to learn um, I remember playing against Claremont in my first two Holland Cup games home and away and i have never been so tired in my life and I was so off the pace so I didn't feel it as good after them games even though we, uh, we won the important one but um, yeah you, like you know, playing against a high level uh, of player or teams uh, continuously improves as a player, and that's how you learn and become uh, a professional player, and you know, go up the, the levels
2: just moving on from that one I mean I know off the top of my head like just thinking about it during the week there like those obviously the, the All-Ireland final loss of St. Colm Kills would have been a, a disappointment for you um, obviously the injury as we touched on it at the start but were there any other kind of incidents that came to mind that, that really kind of got you, got you down and played in your mind during your career?
1: Well the last two years of my career was, were right off for Munster to be honest with you I played for seven seasons but Munster I think I had about maybe 97 caps before the last two seasons and I had seven uh, starts um, I think in two seasons so uh, the first injury I got uh I did my ACL and I was there for eight months which was huge frustration uh, because I, I played the first five Heineken uh, Cup games uh, David Wallace just retired so I was hoping to cement my place uh, within the Munster team and then maybe go into international level to get some more caps um, so that was difficult um, and you know getting through that was a hard part then new management came in tried to impress them and then I had another run of injuries nearly broke my neck and I had bad injuries with my groin, um, and anyway, they, them two years were a ride off, and there were some days where you just didn't know where you were going. Um, mentally, you know, no come the weekend, uh, you're training, trying to get back, but when were you going to get back? And then will you get back into the team when you're when you're ready? Um, and it was frustrating but uh, at the end of them two years I went I actually got married I went to my honeymoon and I was probably in the best shape of my career I went to this place in St Lucia called Les Sport Uh, and I literally was like a professional athlete uh, for two weeks eating the best food in the world on your honeymoon on my honeymoon yeah how did the wife take that it was great uh, but anyway the wife enjoyed it so she was happy anyway um, we went to Vegas on the way home but, <laughs> ok fair enough yeah so I got myself in the best shape in, uh, for that pre-season and then I was I think it was the second Highland Cup game worked myself back into the team and then uh, I injured went went training in Cork on a Thursday went up in the line buckled my knee on the way down and I never played rugby again so that that 7-8 months Getting, getting my uh, my operations and wondering will I be, ever go back and play again, and then finding out uh, that you won't. Them two and a half years were were tough, um, mentally, and then you suppose you have to get to a stage where you accept that you're retiring. I did towards the last few months, but if I look back in that time, that was a, they were dark days because obviously your rugby career is over. You you goals that you set in your head uh, and you you can't achieve them now, and then what do you do next? And I suppose them two, them two years uh, were struggle and were dark days if I look back on them.
2: Yeah, and, and I mean, that's sort of the, the four conversations I've had so far in this series. Everyone's been been quite, quite different. I mean, Jackie Shields was talking about a phone call that she got that basically ended her international career. Adrian and Andy McIntyre were talking about games that they lost, that they struggled to, to deal with or get over. And, you know, Andy, who you're obviously working with now in the meet setup, was talking about how he's kind of taking steps to try and help himself get over defeats and deal with things a little bit better. So everyone has a different sort of story. But for you, in those two and a half years that you talk about there, you know, did you would you you'd be in a, a kind of a natural? sort of upbeat sort of a person would you have kind of dealt with these things on your own would you have you know sought to speak to somebody be it a former player or someone in professional capacity about it because i know we'll, and we'll get on to the wellness piece now uh, later on which you're working in on a day-to-day basis now but you know back then for your own kind of mental health and mental um, strength during those difficult times which how would you have dealt with that yourself would you have kind of just taken it all on your own internally or would you have sought to kind of speak to people and, and try and you know get it out in the open and a problem shared as a problem happened, as they say
1: um, a bit of both. Well, I was I was later on in my career. I was played eleven seasons uh, of professional rugby, so I was older, maybe a little bit wiser. <laughs> Some might say I'm not, but uh, but I was. I so I was understanding that my career is not going to last forever. Um, I wanted to play for longer but unfortunately I didn't so that was in the back of my mind Um, I also was working with um, Irupa, the Irish Rugby Players Association working on my uh, career for post-rugby and I was finishing my degree in strength and conditioning and I was coaching teams and I was uh, working with uh, teams in strength and conditioning so I had a pathway in my head I didn't think it was going to be as soon as I did um, and I had a plan and I also had a mentor, a business mentor that Irupa would have uh, helped me with so I suppose them you know, understanding that my career won't last forever and getting the help from the different support network, networks I had um, made my uh, my kind of next uh, career easy to do but for younger players when they're 22, 23 and they're superstar and then all of a sudden they're injured, that would be a lot more difficult You know, if you've dreamed for another 10 years of your career and it's gone, that's a lot harder to deal with.
2: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer
0: satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023
2: award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, so do you you feel like I, I suppose it was a bowl from the blue to have to retire when you did but you can look back on the likes of the All Blacks game that you touched on there and you know you did have a a relatively long career in the game but still I'm not sure if that would have been a whole lot of comfort to you because it's still taken away from you a little bit prematurely so it must be and you talked about the the acceptance of it it's a I guess it's a grieving process where you move through those all those four or five stages or whatever it is till you you get to the acceptance stage but did it take you long to to kind of get to the acceptance point because I'm sure there must have been a lot of anger frustration whatever you want to call it that white this happened to me. I'm after get myself into the best shape of my life. I've had no luck here for a couple of years. It must be very easy to kind of to, to dwell on that and to get you know a little bit bitter and a little bit down about it.
1: Yeah. I suppose I was used to it, (laughs) to be honest with you, two years before I did my last injury with my knee, I was kind of going, here we go again, you know, so Mm. there was good preparation before that, uh, and I was still, I was working hard on my life after rugby, getting ready for that whenever that may be, so um, I wasn't ready to leave Limerick and stop playing for Munster and move home, definitely wasn't ready for that, uh, but I suppose there was an excitement in that when I... um, when I had the opportunity to move home then uh, I got a chance to go home psh, spend time with my family and my friends that I have been away from since I was 19 years of age so I kind of looked at the positives uh, I remember Jerry Flannery saying when he retired that I'm not going to have any regrets in my career what I, what he achieved was he was very happy what he achieved and I was the same uh, I suppose I come from Drada which wouldn't be a huge rugby tent and I represented Leinster Munster in Ireland um and I'm I was happy enough uh and was time uh, sometimes life takes its own path and I just my time was up so I I moved on and uh, moved home then
2: yeah, and no, apart from the, the playing side of it You talked about you're, you're living down in Limerick You know, you're you're going to be a well-known guy around the place And not that, I'm not saying for a second Like that you're it's an ego thing or anything like that But there must be, there obviously is a, a, a sense of esteem Attached to being a monster player when you're living down in Limerick So aside from just giving up the rugby Did you miss that kind of aspect of it as well Of being a Niall Ronan monster rugby player and, and the kind of notoriety that goes with that Or was that something that would have ever kind of played in your mind One way or the other?
1: that so wouldn't have ever played in my mind um, and that's what Munster stands for to be honest with you ego, mm. if you've an ego like that you're out the door uh, but I do miss representing a team like Munster their ethos their, their family um, everyone's on the same wavelength everyone works hard if you're can you say asshole if you're an asshole you're out the door <laughs> uh, you know like so when you come into the real world uh, what I call it when you play with your local football team or you go in and help teams there's, they're not in the same wavelength now. I know, I know it's not a professional sport but hmm. um, one thing I didn't know was when I back, went back to play for Colin Kills it wasn't like Munster and I knew it wouldn't be but I was hoping to would be some way like it and I miss being in that environment uh, and what stands stand for but uh, we turned that a little bit around when, when we went over a few years with St. Common Kills but that's what I do I miss a bit Munster the whole the whole family and the history of the club and the people of uh, Munster it's interesting that you say, you know, when you went back
2: into the the Calm Kilt dressing room, like, as you said there, you're, you're clearly talking about apples and oranges, I suppose, in terms of professional sport and amateur sport. Yeah. But I guess you're talking about the dynamics within the dressing room. And that, that applies to whether it's, you know, junior B or senior intercounty or international rugby or club rugby or whatever. So did you, from your own personal experience, was that something that you looked to kind of change and, and take on the leadership role within that dressing room in terms of trying to bring a little bit of that kind of, um, I don't know what you want to call it, synergy maybe to the dressing room that, that you felt wasn't there? And you, you know, we've, we've seen the success that St. Kills have had in the last few years, so I, I'm not saying you, you were able to turn everything around on your own or anything, but did you feel like you kind of took on a little bit of a, a leadership role within the dressing room and tried to bring a little bit of harmony to things?
1: Yeah, I probably did. I didn't want it uh, and I probably wasn't used to doing it. When I played for Munster, you had uh, leaders all over the place. You Dougie Hiller, Apollo Con, Ronald O'Gara, Callaghan. There was... 15 liters, and I didn't need to, I needed to just do my job when I played for Munster and communicate on the field and get my job done uh, and I kind of wanted to do the same when I went back to St Common because I hadn't played a game for 12 years Uh, and I was trying to catch up to try and even get on the team but I realised that they needed a bit of leadership Uh, Ben Brennan was a great leader as well but things had to be done and said Uh, and in fairness I I put my step step forward to do that uh, because I knew we wouldn't win otherwise Um, So that was from leading the younger players and calling out some of the older players that were dragging the team down. And eventually it worked and we got to uh, our first county final in 29 years. And for me, that was the bucket list. We did that and the rest was a bonus. It's interesting to hear you talk about this because...
2: I can imagine if I was in the St. Helens Kills dressing room and Niall Ronan comes back in after however many years being away and starts calling lads out for for different things did that create a little bit of tension let's say in the dressing room because I'm sure I'm I'm sure you you, you didn't necessarily want to do it as you said but you felt like you had to but was there you know was it was it difficult to do that given that you'd been away for so long and you were kind of stepping back in afresh was was it hard to make to, to kind of call lads out and and to try and sort things out in the dressing room a little bit because you had been away for so long
1: eh uh, no is the answer that might sound cocky, but uh, it needed to be done. Like it wasn't because it was me talking; it had to be done. And we needed to win. Mm. I wanted to win. All the players wanted to win, and they kind of had to make them realize they needed to win. And you know, in fairness, with had a great manager that year, Colin Alley, who was outstanding. And if there was any dirty work to be done, I did it. You know, because it was my team, it was our our team, our club, mm. and he would have always said that. He's there to facilitate us. Uh, when it had to be done, we did it. And at the end of the day, we were successful. So... I don't regret it any.
2: Well, no, the, the the proof was in the in the success you had after that. But um, it's interesting to hear that you you, you had no hesitation in doing it. And you've been in enough addressing rooms now. Is it easy to to kind of spot the, the the lads that are maybe a drain on things? And I don't know what how exactly that manifests itself. whether it's those fellas that are always complaining about things or, or blaming other people when when they need to look more at their own performances. Is it kind of easy to to spot the lads that are are causing the problem? And you know, do you have do you have one to one conversations with them, or do you kind of you know have a have a chat in front of everybody. How does it work?
1: Um, well, some some sometimes people don't even realise they're bringing the team there. Uh, and if you make them aware of it uh, one on one, uh, you know personal personal conversation. I think that's the best way to do it. But if you don't listen, you have to call them out. and to keep doing it. Like look, it wasn't on a regular occurrence with captains, no. but we just wanted. I wanted, it, and so did the manager and Ben, who was the captain. We to be professional, we wanted to win and it's not easy to win an Intermediate Championship um, and we needed to just be all on the same wavelength and it was a team and we're coached as a team as well because Colin was very tactical so if you go against it uh, then you needed to be called out and uh, in fairness it wasn't that many times but sometimes we had to say it and we won at the end so it was a good outcome
2: absolutely yeah and it all, it all worked out well in the end as you say there and um, again just to kind of get back to the, the, the broader discussion point on this uh, podcast when we're talking about you know how people deal with adversity and how they kind of recover from it you're now in a situation where you're you're retired from professional sport you have the, the, the Titan wellness business which we've spoken to you about before when you're kind of you know there's, there's a whole range of issues around that but do you find that the experiences you have from the, the, the dark days that you touched on earlier like everyone kind of has, has their good days in sport and and they're great and we always hear that you kind of learn more from your defeats and all that kind of thing but do you feel that the adversity you went through with the injury the, the defeats you talked about there let's say against the All Blacks and those kind of things do you feel that those experiences have given you a much kind of broader range of discussion points for people now and that they've they've helped you in your in your post rugby career because you have those those kind of dark days and tough days to, to draw upon. And I'm sure i I'm sure you must get the, the younger lads in the Con hills or wherever asking you how you dealt with certain situations. So have you found that, that those kind of tough times have given you um you know a sense of perspective and, and you're able to kinda of help people out now more than you would have if everything had been kind of plain sailing in your career?
1: Um like the dark days never really affected my mental health like, obviously days where I frustrated but um, I suppose when you have when you get dropped so many times or you get injured so many times um, it's easier to take you know so over time you can understand you have to, you, you're have going to have more awareness you have a more emotional um Emotional awareness or emotional intelligence, where you kind of go, right, well, this is why I wasn't picked instead of, you know, blaming someone. You know, um, I did actually a counseling psychotherapy certificate in between in the middle of my degree uh, when I was, I had six months break between my, in my degree because I was doing 18 modules, um, and it was unbelievable. Uh, it really opened my eyes how to speak to people, how to even word a question and understand why people might have issues with their mental health or it might be you know have anxiety or stress or or worry so that really helped me personally um and then obviously my life experience helped that so um i do help people and um, my business is Titan wellness and we provide workplace wellbeing solutions and mental health physical health and i as well suppose as overall uh you know helping people i like doing that as well it's rewarding and um, a qualified coach in strength and condition and rugby so um it's coaching people, you know, so I do enjoy um, you know, sharing my memories and helping people. When you talk about
2: the psychotherapy piece there and the, the, the um certificate you did in that, what was the, the biggest standout from that? You touched on a couple of things there, how to phrase a question and that but what was is there any one thing that really stayed with you from, from doing that that's that stuck in your mind in terms of wow that's a real a real eye opener for me?
1: Yeah, if you are giving someone advice let them figure out what their problem is. Rather than you telling them. So figure that one out.
2: <laughs> so if you're giving someone let them figure out what the problem is first
1: yeah. so like if you ask them questions they'll obviously tell you something you have to kind of paraphrase their answers into a question um, and that would eventually hopefully uh to figure out why there's an issue or what the problem is or have a realisation. That's one thing I, I've, I definitely got out of. It. I actually would have used it now, coaching rugby. Uh, I'd ring a fella and I'd uh, probably give away my secrets here now. But uh, I'd ring him <laughs> and I'd get him to say, how'd you fi- how'd you f- how did you find playing the weekend? How did the game go for you? And then I'd say, how was your line out? Oh, I missed three throws. Did you miss any tackles? I missed four. All right, well, we can't pick it this weekend. But he told me all the reasons why I'm not picking him rather than me giving why he's not picked, mm. you know, and it was an easier way to do it. Now that's that's one. Of, you can bring it into business, or whatever. Uh, I'm not an expert, but mm. it's just wor- how to communicate, basically and figure out reasons why that you you might be in a bad situation it might not be your fault it might be your fault but questions can actually help that and you have to change yourself uh, if you have a problem rather than someone telling you you know so that's what i learned from it
2: yeah and and i mean i guess the 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 root of a lot of a lot of problems in whether it's in relationships in work in team sports whatever is is the communication and how people you know deal with certain things whether it's a coach you know as you said they're dropping somebody or whatever or whether it's a boss in work having a, a a chat with with a you know with somebody a subordinate underneath them or whatever it is and a lot of the time it's it's how these things are phrased isn't it that can get people's backs up a little bit and, and put those out of joint. so what you touched on there is, is actually a really interesting thing how you phrase questions and how you deal with certain situations can have a hugely negative or positive impact on on the person depending on how you deal with it
1: yeah absolutely um, I suppose when you're, I was doing my degree in strength and conditioning you'd have the different styles of coaches and um, when I was reading out the definition of an autocratic coach I'm right you're wrong type of coach uh, I was not that guy so I was like I don't ever want to be that person Cause I've worked under some of them before so it's how you communicate and get the best out uh, of people, like if you look at, I'm a big soccer fan, Man United fan look at Jurgen Klopp he he definitely is ruthless but 90% of the time he he his players love him but he talks and he communicates with them, he's there for them on the field and off the field and that's uh, same as a HR manager or whatever, um, and I think I think that's the modern approach. Uh, we don't live in that world where everyone's giving out to each other, and you have to go and do it. We have to communicate better, and I think if you do it in a positive way, you'll get uh, productivity will improve anyway.
2: And just one final point on that: Do you think there's still a place, though, for the, the more ruthless approach or the more direct approach not like very maybe sparingly but do you find that that's, that's still required sometimes or is that do you think gone out the door and you're obviously involved again as I said with, with mead so you're probably privy to a lot, of, a lot of dressing room conversations but is there still a little bit of um, I suppose the carrot and stick analogy again is there still a bit of room for that kind of more more direct approach where maybe some lad needs a, a kick up the
1: backside sometimes yeah absolutely it has to be if you're giving out every single session Eventually, you're going to get bored of it and it's going to go one one ear out the other. But if you're giving good feedback, constructive criticism, um, you're positive to your players or to your staff, um, and then when you might be a little bit more uh, aggressive or ruthless, then you'll listen up because you respect the person. Uh, But eventually, respect will go if you're constantly giving out or being more, uh, being an autocratic type person, you know.
2: Just one final point then, and you touched on your your work with um, Titan Wellness in, in, in kind of professional environments and around offices and that. What kind of, because especially, you know, a part of the reason, again, that we started doing this podcast was because people are living through a difficult time, have been for the last few months. And, you know, obviously things have eased up a little bit, but it, we, who knows where we're going to be in another month or two's time. But what problems have you kind of seen um, most typically in in, in a kind of an office setting when you're going in to, to talk to people? Is Is there any kind of common... You know, teams you're seeing when you're going in to, to speak to to different companies, or or is it a wide variety of issues that you kind of come across? Presumably, it varies from one place to the next.
1: Um, I don't know there's there's a few things. Uh, I suppose uh, connectivity is the first one. Um, you know, people are connecting socially with people at work. Uh, you know, so and their routine is affected by that as well so normally people get up they go to work they meet people uh, have a conversation or they work together on projects now it's all virtual so it's not the same Mm. Um, it's great that they do connect but um, I think like for me personally uh, I was in lockdown for four months two kids under four my routine was 100% um, affected by that mm. but as I went into the office I'm being very productive and getting a lot of work done and getting a lot of work done in one day rather than three or four days um, and I'm connecting with people who are back in the office as well so um, David the two standout things um, as well as that people who haven't worked remotely uh, you know they might have mightn't have accommodation that's uh, functional for work as well so that that was uh, the ergonomics type Um, you know your work in environment is affected as well so mm. they'd be the three main things that would be standing in
2: just to wrap things up then and to go back to the, the point that we started on at the very beginning of the, the chat that game against the All Blacks you said you watched it back the other night was that the first time you'd watched it back or have you have you watched it a few times over the years
1: I think I have watched it three or four times and the fourth time was uh, I think the other night because it was on telly um, but uh, yeah, three or four times I think is the amount of times I watched it.
2: And to, to, to flip things around a little bit, there, what did you, how did you make of your own performance? How many tackles did you miss? <laughs>
1: um, I think I missed. I threw a b- brutal pass in the second half. Uh, there was an overlap, and I didn't even look. But uh, I did some good, some bad. But uh, what an occasion! So uh, it's too late to be critical about it now. <laughs>
2: and it's obviously, you know, you, you talk you, you talk about it in, in terms of it being kind of one of your worst memories. But it's it's still it's probably a little bit of a bittersweet one because you, you remember the the occasion and everything around it so fondly. But those last kind of five minutes or so when it just away from you is probably the the bit that makes it a little bit a little kind of conflicted in your head because ultimately you didn't win the game, but you you know you're you're speaking so fondly about the occasion, the man that you met getting off the bus that was crying and everything that went with it so it was it was a magical occasion in so many ways, but just just slipped away from you right at the end
1: yeah absolutely you're right like go back to my career, i enjoyed every bit of it um and that was part of it, and I never have any regrets but uh, that was a little bit of regret because we were so close if we were losing by 30 points uh, I wouldn't have cared as much but uh, when you're that close uh, it's harder to take especially in front of such an incredible crowd that deserved it and uh, we put our bodies on the line but again that sport it's cruel at times
2: that's it, absolutely. Listen, Niall, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to discuss. I know another uh, a little, little uh, sort of a sad memory from your career in some ways, but still, as you said, a very memorable occasion. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. How about it? Yes, nowron and there talking about that clash in 2008 with the All Blacks when Munster came so close to repeating that famous win of 1978 and who knows maybe that would have prompted a sequel to alone it stands it just wasn't to be in the end for the men in red just looking back on some of the detail from that game Munster were 33 to 1 outsiders before the game and were missing 10 Ireland players they led by 16 points to 10 at half time and 16 13 which was 4 minutes to go before Joe Rocococo got that try that broke Munster's heart So near and yet so far, as Niall said, they're great to hear from him and great memories from that game, in spite of the fact that they ultimately came up short. A reminder that if you're listening to this podcast before the weekend, LMFM Sunday Sport returns to the airwaves on Sunday after many months of inactivity. I'm very much looking forward to getting back to that, and I hope you'll join me from half past two. So until then, from myself, David Sheen, look after yourselves.